get the load I'm hauling Hard work, I hit it harder Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer Sun up to sundown Backing up traffic all the way to town Camo hat and a farmer's tan Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track from the National Association of Farm Broadcasting Convention in Kansas City. We're awful glad you're here. On this episode, we'll hear from U.S. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue, who's here to talk with broadcasters about trade, MFP payments, and ag forecasts heading into 2020. We'll also talk trade with USDA Undersecretary Ted McKinney, and we'll talk tractors with Mahindra North America President and CEO Viren Popley. We'll also hear from legendary farm broadcaster Orion Samuelson. And then we'll take you to the legendary Ernest Tubb Record Shop in Nashville for music from acclaimed singer-songwriter Bobby Tomberlin. You won't want to miss a moment of it. Let's go! First up this week on the program, on the final day of the NAFB convention, U.S. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue made an appearance for a question and answer session moderated by NAFB President Lori Boyer. To lead off the discussion, Perdue was asked about trade negotiations with China. Well, again, confidence level uh, uh, when you have to... uh depend on China is just there. We, we don't know what China's response will be. Uh, I know the President and Ambassador Lighthizer and Secretary Mnuchin are working tirelessly in order to reset this relationship. Uh, many people like to look at the last couple of years and talk about a trade war or trade disruption. Uh, this war's been going on for about 20 years, and uh, China's been winning. And I think you look at the, uh, the economic situation globally and you can see that. But I think uh, President Trump is committed to resetting this relationship, making sure that we're playing on a level playing field. While agriculture has enjoyed the customer standpoint of that, we also know there have been some very uh, untoward things going on regarding uh, technology and regarding the U.S. economy as well as the ag economy, Uh, digging up seeds and those kind of things and trying to reverse engineer, using the hard work of American ingenuity and creativity and uh, bypassing the hard work and taking it to China. So uh, while I'm hopeful, uh, I think we have to be realistic that uh, we don't know yet, and we won't know. Uh, the president is committed to, uh, to doing this phase one deal if it's in the best interest of the United States. And there are a lot of caveats when it comes to China. Uh, I'd say the ball is in their court. Uh, the good news is the numbers that we've seen actually, uh, if it is consummated, uh, is going to be tremendous uh, windfall for agriculture. In fact, the president has asked me, can our producers produce that much? And I've committed them, when you turn the American producers loose, they're, they're able to get it done. And if they're markets, we're going to produce to that market. In fact, I still say oftentimes, it's, it's, as a citizen of the United States of America, it's a blessing to be here where we produce more food than we can consume domestically. And trade is so important, we have to have it because we overproduce in those areas. And that's why he, again, uh, very quickly understood last year with the market facilitation program, and again this year with the market facilitation program, why agriculturalists, producers, were going to be hardest hit because we're exporters. We, mm-hmm. we contribute to the trade surplus, not the trade deficit. And uh, so it's, uh, it's very important. It's a huge market. I'm hopeful. Uh, I don't know that that moves into the optimistic phase yet, but I'm hopeful that we can get something done. I, I do know that the President Lighthizer and Mnuchin would like to get something done if it's a good deal. 
How many phases will there be altogether? Uh, I don't know that. I, I don't know we're talking about uh, uh, phase one here, which mm -hmm. does reset some serious things, but obviously other structural reforms for China that uh, requires them to look at their overall uh, way they do business and their economy right. and, and do more serious things. But when you talk about currency and talk about uh, intellectual property transfers and force transfers and agricultural purposes, those purchases, those are those are pretty important things there themselves. Purdue then was asked if he thought Congress would pass USMCA before the end of 2019 and if he thought it would be possible for legislators to take politics out of the issue and focus on the human element of the trade agreement between the United States, Canada, and Mexico. It's a good question. Uh, if you can define imminent in Washington, D.C. for me, I can tell you the answer to that question. Uh, that's the, the word of the, of the day, I think, is it will be passed. It's imminent. Uh, but as Congressman Marshall knows, eminent has different definitions in D.C., depending on who you're talking to. Uh, I, I am. I, I'm optimistic that it will get done. It just, uh, I think in light of everything else going on in D.C. right now, this Congress, both Democrats and Republicans, need to go home over Christmas break and say, we got this done. I, I do believe it will get done this year. I, I think I'm glad to hear the Speaker uh, continue to speak favorably of it. Ambassador Lighthizer has done a marvelous job patiently addressing some of those issues. Let me just say, USMCA, we all had kind of a gasp in agriculture when the president talked about withdrawing. There was this great sucking sound there, and our mantra was, first of all, do no harm. Not only has he not done any harm, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line by line, this is an approved relationship for agriculture, but also in the over-greater economy. Uh, in, in manufacturing and others, for labor, for employment, for health, for environment, those types of things. When you think about this agreement, 24, 20, 25 years old, was uh, created even before the internet, digital communication, data uh, communication, then uh, it needed to be modernized. And I think uh, hopefully this Congress will recognize that this is something that needs to be done. I've been in Democratic and Republican districts all over the country. And uh, I believe if we put forth today, uh, Congressman Marshall may be able to have a better idea. I believe if we put on the floor today, it would pass both, both conferences, both caucuses uh, uh, easily. Just a follow-up to that. During your travels and your discussions with grassroots producers, do you feel like they're, they're getting that message? Do you feel like they're supporting it? In our oh, they have. A thousand ag organizations uh, uh, supported it. They, they, you couldn't ask for better support from the agricultural uh, community and the various groups that are affiliated with agriculture, they've been very supportive. All of the living former secretaries of agriculture have been supportive. So uh, you couldn't get more support than this, uh, this agreement has had in that way. And what else in the life today do you get that kind of unanimity about in, in that way? And so while we hope that uh, the things going on in Washington that are not related to the real economy, don't distract and get caught up into the politics of that, I'm optimistic that before these uh, members go home for Christmas and uh, we'll, see a, we'll see a deal on USMCA. Purdue then touted other developments with foreign trade partners. Incrementally, I think what it shows is that while China has been the big elephant in the room, uh, we're out doing other things along uh, that way. And the president is... Uh, is on it, uh, certainly from his relationship with Balasaro and, and Brazil, over those kind of things. We're pressing them on ethanol issues and that, that way as well. 
But this opening up the China market to poultry, mm -hmm. particularly for those types of uh, poultry products that uh, U.S. consumers don't prefer, uh, that is a huge windfall, billion-dollar potential trade with China in that area. The secretary then was asked about something on many producers' minds, market facilitation payments. So I think there was anxiety and uh, you know, once the first payments got announced, well, we're going to have the second tranche, and I'm sure after this next week when the second tranche goes out, we'll be talking about, oh, we're going to have the third tranche. And uh, it's an interesting question. I, uh, uh, again, we, uh, we went to OMB, Office of Management and Budget, to the allocators of this money. The president's committed on that money. He understands that uh, uh, why it's needed, and uh, he was the primary proponent of that. I don't. Uh, I think I can say pretty assuredly we we would not have gotten sixteen billion dollars out of the White House without President Trump insisting that he. Mm -hmm. The day after the talks broke down, and uh, with the Chinese in late April, early May, he called me that next morning early, and he said, "Okay." What are we going to do? Bring me a program that, uh, again, acknowledges this deal. They backed up. They've, they've retreated from where we had agreed, and uh, we're not going to let them bully us into uh, uh, capitulating in that area. So you, you protect my, my farmers. In fact, I, I've told other groups, some of you may have heard me tell this story before, but when that, in that meeting when Leah Huh was there and things were going well before China reneged, uh, he had uh, Lighthizer there sitting right across from him. Uh, Mnuchin was to his left. Leah Ho was to his left. I was to Lighthizer's right. And he said, guys, this was the exit interview with Leah Ho, the China vice premier there. And uh, he said, sounds like things are going pretty well on the cyber issues there. And I want to encourage you all to make sure we get that done. But he pointed his finger at Mnuchin Lighthouse and said, but I want you to take care of my farmers. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of gives you a little bit. When the president points his finger at you and tells you to take care of somebody, that's how this all got done. It wouldn't have gotten done without him. But again, uh, we are delighted that OMB, again, uh, released the allocation of the second tranche. I guess the question is, and maybe the, un the unasked question is, if we get a trade deal, there. What is the expectation from the producer community over that? And what's the expectation from 2020? I personally don't want us to get uh, uh, entitled for other uh, market facilitation payments. I think uh, uh, farmers said from the very beginning, and I believe them, they'd rather have trade than aid. And I'm hoping we get trade. So I'm hoping we get a deal, a trade deal that moves the markets in a very positive way. So there was a question on these MFP payments it being a signal that phase one of the China trade deal may not happen. But based on what you've already talked about with China, it sounds like these are completely separate things going on and not relying on each other. Well, they are currently. I mean, the future is, uh, you know, it's like Yogi Bear said, the future is all ahead of us. We don't know. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the... Uh, um, Y'all didn't know who Yogi Berra was, right? Uh, uh, the, the fact is, if as kind of what I said earlier, if we get a, a major trade deal, and when, when I'm talking about a major trade deal, the purchase quantities are double what they've ever bought before. Now, you know, the proof's in the pudding. We want, we want to see the contracts. We want to see the orders here, not just the commitment. But if we have... China buying twice as much as they've ever bought before, that ought to move the markets. That ought to move the markets significantly. Sure. Yeah. And farmers 
while they have benefited and, you know, needed the market facilitation program, they really would rather have trade than aid. And uh, to some degree, the, the dichotomy of the emotions out there are farmers would rather have the money from the scales in the mailbox. And that's why it's been sort of unfulfilling and to some degree of having to rely on those market facilitation programs. But we don't want to have to rely on them permanently. I, I'm not encouraging anyone to expect a 2020 payment. Purdue then was asked about reports stating that some producers had not received payments they felt they were due from the first tranche of MFP payments. No, I can't. I'm not aware of that. But if, if those people would contact us directly over, you mean the first round of market facilitation programs? Mm-hmm. Unless there's some certification issue at the county level, I do not know why that would occur, and I'm not familiar with those having happened. But if uh, if they would alert our people, I, I'm not aware of anything from uh, uh, Undersecretary Northey or, or Jamie Clover Adams that that's going on. Uh, frankly, what I've heard is it's pretty smooth out there on that, and I want to congratulate again our FPAC people for really working on that. You've had you've had two disasters in a row two market facilitations of the program in the world, and uh, I think they've done yeoman's work to get that done as smoothly as they have it on time in that way. So I would encourage you all, if you have people that you know of that have not received uh, the first uh, tranche of market facilitation, we'll, we'll dig down and find out what that is. Purdue also addressed reports that some farmers in the Midwest have complained about a disproportionate amount of payments going to farmers in other parts of the country. I do want to correct the record. It's been interesting. One of our members of uh, Congress on the Senate side had this 10-page report where she advocated that. What the deal is, it's interesting, of the five southeastern states that uh, she referenced, uh, both Illinois and Iowa individually had more money than uh, those five southeastern states combined in that area. So uh, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, uh, they're in the top five as far as the money goes out. So this is nothing more than political uh, conversation trying to, uh, again, bash administration. And the facts are there. They're very clear. One of the reasons you had higher county rates in that was you have higher valued rates, of value crop rates like cotton and peanuts that are grown in those southeastern states rather than corn and beans on a, on a per acre basis. And that that was the influence of the county rates that were commuted. But you can't, you can't conflate county rates with the dollars that have gone out. The dollars have been overwhelmingly to our, our best production area, which is the Midwest and upper Midwest. The secretary then addressed concerns many farmers are having about the overall state of the farm economy. While we talk about things that are really bad, there is a lot of stress out there. There's emotional stress. Mm-hmm. I would say economically, the stress is more about working capital diminishment. There's no doubt that working capital has gone down and cash is king, so you don't have as much in the checkbook to write for things that you need to pay for. And uh, But we're coming off career highs from, you know, 2009 to 2012 and 13. Those were career highs for, for most farmers in that area. And, and good, good production and good prices, some of the best we'd ever seen. And so this market's been shrinking down price-wise since 2012. So we've had this trade war for a couple of years, and a lot of people like to use that as a reason or excuse, mm. but these prices have been going down. There's been economic stress. Why? Because we're so dead gum productive. 
And, and farmers in this country, with yields continuing to go up, are just overproducers. That's why we got to get out here and find more people other than China to buy. India, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, sure. Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam, uh, all those. India is going to have just as many people as China. They've been tough, a tough nut to crack regarding exports, but Ted McKinney's been there two or three times. Uh, President's talking to President Modi over there. Lighthizer's on it. I'm hoping we can continue to, to kind of crack that nut that China, India is so and develop big markets uh, otherwise. And that's a good place for us to bring in Ted McKinney, the Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs with the USDA. He's led many of the country's ag trade missions and is optimistic that many of our trade partners will open their markets to purchase what's being produced here in America. Mr. McKinney, it's a real pleasure to talk with you. Well, thanks. It's good to be with you, too. As we uh, start to wrap up 2019, uh, you, you have been one of the busiest guys in agriculture here. You've uh, recently been in Mexico. You've been in Vietnam. You've been in Ghana. What are you learning as you go on those trips about uh, other countries' impressions of uh, U.S. agriculture? Sure. Well, two or three thoughts come to mind. First, with the exception of Europe, uh, the entire rest of the world sees our quality and safety and, in some cases, volume of food and ag products as second to none. Uh, there's just no question about the safety and quality, and that's that's a great starting position. So that's that's one. The second thing I'll say is that there is opportunity out there. There really is. Clearly, we have been focused on major markets, as we should. They've been buying the product, and you don't turn your back on those people, and we're not going to. So I'm speaking of Canada and Mexico, China. Japan, Korea, Taiwan. We want to sustain and grow those markets. But so too have we learned that there's a lot of other markets out there that may not be quite as large, but still represent great buying partners and trading partners for us. And so we want to and have been working on them. And the third thing is a little more depressing, and that is trade is simply not fair around the world. Uh, it is not, and it probably never will be perfect. You know, we in the in the Midwest, for example, always try to believe that our handshake is our bond, and you don't need contracts in many cases. You know, it's very Midwesternist, but the world is not that way, and there's protectionism that's rampant. But you know, it's funny under the current. Uh, difficulties, the choppy waters we're going through, we are seeing some of that straightened out. And it's because they know the U.S. means business now. We're not just going to turn the other cheek and take it. We're going to make sure that trade is fair. And that means we don't want an advantage. We'll fight on a level playing field. So I would say those are three things that, uh, that strike me over the last two and a half years. So when you go to all these foreign countries, what is the message you take with you about the strength of American agriculture? Well, you know, it's an easy message to take because they know it already, and that is quality and safety is, is unquestioned. It's there. That's just the way our food and ag is. So that's a good starting point. The other message I take is that um, I seek win-win. I know that's a cliche that's probably overused, but I mean it and I try to back that up with the prowess and the strength of the U.S. government, which is I want to work for their needs as much as I hope they're working on mine. Now, oftentimes they got to work harder than us because we're pretty fair with our trade. But where there are questions or issues, we try to resolve those so that we build trust and build that two-way relationship. And so that's the other thing. And the third thing, as was stated earlier, is there's markets to be had out there. 
And when you go in seeking that win-win, seeking a true partnership, I think we can have a pretty bright future. I really do. And what's the most gratifying part of the job for you? Oh, I suspect helping our farmers and ranchers. Uh, You know, I come from a farm. My family, my twin brother, sister-in-law, mom and dad still farm in Indiana. And I know the difficulties that farmers and ranchers have faced now, six years running now in many cases. It is tough out there. And, of course, 2019 with weather and markets and trade and so other has just been uh, has just been an added burden. So to the degree that we can find a new market, even if it's a small market, some farmer or rancher is going to benefit from that. That warms, that tickles my innards, and that's what gets me up every day. I'd say the other thing is the opportunity to continue to promote technology. Now, I'm open for whatever kind of production system they have. If they're raising organic product, I'm going to be their biggest fan. I'm going to try to help them export that product. But similarly, I come from a background of high technology, and I see the benefits to feeding the world. And it's, it, there's room for all of it. So if we can tone the rhetoric down on one versus the other, that's one thing I try to do. But with absolute certainty, I am out there promoting the importance, the critical need of technology. Otherwise, we're not going to address 9 or 10 billion people by 2050. Those are fun things. Well, I tell you what, we appreciate the job that you're doing on behalf of agriculture. And Undersecretary McKinney, we sure appreciate you taking the time to join us on Fast Line Fast Track. And we hope we can catch up with you down the road. Thanks very much. And next up on Fast Line Fast Track, we had the opportunity here at the NAFB convention to catch up with Viren Popley, the president and CEO of Mahindra North America. He recently wrapped up his first year at the helm of a division of Mahindra that now has more than 500 dealers throughout North America. We had the chance to discuss how Mahindra has grown to become one of the major players in the global tractor market and how that market looks heading into 2020. And Varen, thank you for taking the time out to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track. Thank you, and thank you for having me on Fast Line. So we, uh, we we cross paths with these guys a lot at a lot of the shows. They've got a, always an impressive booth uh, with the latest product offerings. And uh, uh, Varen, what's the outlook now for the compact and utility tractor industry as we head into 2020? We are fairly optimistic about how this will be because uh, the biggest thing is the largest segment that we deal with is is grass, right? And grass is going to grow every year. So if the grass is going to grow, you need a subcompact and a subcompact utility. The second is hay, and that also is going to grow and needs to be cut. So broadly, we we don't see any slowdown or any uh, major drop in volumes unless something catastrophic happens, which I don't see any of that in the near future. So I assume, you know, we'll see pretty good uh, season coming up next year as well. So it seems like as we get into each year, uh, I hear more and more about Mahindra. What is your focus going into 2020 to, to keep that momentum building? Well, for us, the uh, we focus on two elements, basically. First, we focus on the customer, and we work very closely with the customer to make sure that we bring in the best product that he can, that works for him, right? So we want a reliable product that's easy to use and doesn't fail and just works the way it's supposed to. And then we work with our dealer network to make sure that we have a strong dealer network that's able to service, has the spare parts and the training to be able to deal with the customer in case he lands up with any trouble. Uh, we currently have about 550 to six, 550 dealers across the country. We aim to be about 650 by the end of next year and keep growing that to about 1,000 over the next three to four years. So we, we clearly see that as a clear thrust area. So as we expand the network, you're going to see even more of us and hear more about us as we move forward. Mahindra works with family-owned businesses. 
So unlike many other players, we are not into consolidation. We are actually into working with family-owned businesses. And the reason we do that is we believe that, you know, we believe that the American dream is about people being able to work hard and make a business success for themselves. And really, that's what we want to do. We want to help people, uh, you know, chase their dream and achieve it. So, and the customers love it because they know that when they walk into a Mahindra dealership, there's always a hot cup of coffee and, a, and the owner sitting there waiting to talk to him. And, you know, so that builds trust. At the end of the day, we like to buy products from people we trust and people we can look in the eye and say, I like it. Because, you know, that's what makes all the difference and that's what we're working on. What gets you excited about coming to work each day and doing this? Well, to me, every day is exciting because, you know, you're making a difference to people's lives. You're actually making it better for people. You're actually improving their lives. Look, Mahindra works in various parts of the world. And we work with farmers who own between five acres all the way to 500 acres. We know how to make a five-acre farmer profitable. And we really know how to make a 500-acre farmer profitable as well. And that's what we want to do. So we want to try and see how do we make more and more farmers profitable because at the end of the day you know coming from a background of agriculture myself i know how tough that life is and why it's important to have to make that farmer profitable because our futures depend on it you know what are you going to eat if there are no farmers well baron we sure appreciate it uh, we always look forward to seeing you guys at the farm shows and uh, we thank you for taking the time to join us on fast line fast track Thank you, and wish all you and all the farmers, uh, farmer friends out there a great day ahead. Thank you. On the next episode of Fast Line Fast Track, Ryan Piercy, the Senior Product Manager for Mahindra USA, will share more about Mahindra's product lineup, so be sure to come back to check that out. But for now, here at the convention, I had the honor to spend some time with one of my inspirations in the business, Orion Samuelson, who's attending his 63rd NAFB convention. The legendary WGN and U.S. Farm Report broadcaster has been a trusted name in agricultural reporting for decades and continues to be the gold standard for bringing the story of agriculture not only to the community, but to the mainstream, helping all all media consumers understand the industry that produces their food, clothing, and other essential items. And back on Fast Line Fast Track, and this one is a distinct honor and, and, and privilege for me, uh, uh, getting to spend some time here at the National Association of Farm Broadcasters meeting with the guy that many consider to be the dean of farm broadcasting, Orin Samuelson, WGN Radio in uh, Chicago, and uh, the big O, welcome into the program. Well, thank you very much, and uh, being called dean bothers me a little bit. I, I do what you do and a lot of other people do and try to do it as well as you do, but... Uh, Always fun to come back here. I started attending this in 1956 when it was held in Chicago during the International Livestock Show. And uh, then, of course, Louisville took the uh, Livestock Show out of Chicago, and uh, we moved to Kansas City with the farm broadcasters, and we've been coming here ever since. And it's a great time to say hello to uh, some of the old-timers and uh, to the young ones as well. So. Uh, going back early in your career, what got you into farm broadcasting? Well, I grew up on a dairy farm in Wisconsin, getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning to milk cows. And by the time I was 20, I realized that uh, agriculture was a lot easier to talk about than actually do. And uh, God gave me a voice, and uh, the FFA gave me training in public speaking, and I started uh, my first radio job back in 1952. 
just uh, celebrated my 59th year on the air at WGN, and uh, there's a farmer in Indiana, northern Indiana, who said, Samuelson, why don't you retire and give some young people a chance? So maybe one of these days I'll have to do that. As one of the younger, I can tell you uh, we, we don't want that. We, we'd rather keep you around and, and, and keep it going because you've been a great inspiration to us. What are some of the fondest recollections you have of your career on the air? How much time do we have? Because I've got a lot of them. But uh, first of all, let me say WGN really gave me an opportunity, heart of downtown Chicago. And when I started there, we did a full hour at noon, live band. We'd go out to county fairs and state fairs. And they understood. Ward Qual was the general manager of the station at the time. He hired me. And they understood that with a 50,000-watt clear channel signal at that time, we covered a lot of people and a lot of country. And agriculture was an important part of that audience and that country. And so they said, we're going to keep covering agriculture in any way and every way that we can. And he was so uh, intense on that that he insisted. I go to meetings all over the country, and he said, Orion, you travel first class because we're going to do it first class. The uh, the importance of agriculture is no less today, but there's so much more noise and so many places people can get information. How do we keep ag front and center to make sure that it maintains that importance? Well, number one, we stay knowledgeable and we stay with the new technology and the new developments that are in agriculture to help produce food, and whether it be plant-based or animal-based, and that we do it uh, uh, friendly to the environment, friendly to the animals and all that. And so we need to cover that and keep our information and education on that firm so that we know what we're talking about. And uh, unlike a lot of other people who try to cover agriculture outside of your industry and my industry, they don't have the knowledge. And so we have to keep our knowledge. And then we have to keep our relationship with the farmers and the ranchers of the country. Don't ever forget who is producing the food. That's why with Thanksgiving coming, I always say, if your invocation uh, says, bless the hands that prepared it, I say, bless the hands that produced it. So what do you take away as some of the greatest developments that, that you've had a ringside seat to watch during your time in agriculture? Just how have you seen the, the industry evolve? Well, as I say, that's why I titled my book, You Can't Dream Big Enough, because milking cows in a cold dairy barn in Wisconsin, I never would have dreamed that I'd go to 44 countries, that I would meet nine presidents, that I would work with every Secretary of Agriculture since Ezra Taft Benson in the Eisenhower administration, that I would shake hands with Fidel Castro, that I would meet Mikhail Gorbachev. I could never have dreamed that would happen. That's what this career has done because agriculture is so important. And it's given me the opportunity to take a look at how people in other parts of the world work really hard to produce food and at the same time get very little recognition for it. I mean, that's something that is important to me that we're able to serve an important part of our population around the world 
and do it with a look at how they're doing it in Southeast Asia. You know, I've gone to China 10 times, and every time I've gone to China, it's a new country. It's evolved, changed that quickly. Gone to Russia four times, went with Secretary Bloch uh, back in the mid-'80s when we signed the first U.S.-USSR grain agreement. That's when there was a Soviet Union and uh, all of the events that uh, I have had the opportunity to observe, to participate in, but still most important to me, farmers and ranchers and families, 4-H kids, FFA kids, you, you name it. They are the important people. Well, Mr. Samuelson, on, the, uh, uh, on behalf of all broadcasters in this profession, we thank you for your service and the inspiration that you've provided. And I sure appreciate you taking the time out to, uh, to join us here on the show. And you just keep on keeping on, young man. Well, what a treat to spend some time with Hall of Fame broadcaster Orion Samuelson and his wonderful wife, Gloria. And now we want to take you to the legendary Ernest Tubb Record Shop in Nashville to hear from acclaimed songwriter Bobby Tomberlin, who's penned some classic songs for the likes of Blake Shelton, Willie Nelson, the Oak Ridge Boys, Diamond Rio, and so many more. He's also a powerful vocalist with an appreciation for traditional country. I can't wait for you to hear it for yourself. Back on Fast Line Fast Track from the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway in Nashville, Tennessee. And now it's my dis- Distinct honor and pleasure to welcome in Bobby Tomberlin. Bobby started out as a disc jockey at a radio station in the hometown of Luverne, Alabama at age 11. Uh, he's had a chance to interview Johnny Cash, Waylon, Keith Whitley, and uh, get this, Mel Tillis uh, gave him his first publishing contract. And he's currently a, so- a staff uh, songwriter for Curb Music Publishing in Nashville. Bobby, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Oh, man, it's so good to be here. Uh- Love your. Am I now? I should know how to handle the mic, right? I'm, I'm Sam Rusty. I mean, after all those radio years. No, this is great, man. Uh, he, he was telling me a story a little while ago. He actually started out at the age of 11, but uh, was playing radio in his basement at uh, age five. Oh, Dude, I did gosh. the same thing, and here we are. Yeah, my little make-believe radio station in my bedroom. I would actually give the funeral announcements, the weather <laughs> forecast, and. Oh, man. But that was the, you know, those were the years that totally set me up for wanting to come here and chase the dream, you know. So how do you get in front of some of those legends like you have? How did that transpire? You know, that's a great question. I think, you know, Bart Herbison at the Nashville Songwriters Association, he says, man, you love country music so much, it loves you back. And uh, I've just been blessed to work with some of the greatest, whether it be... Phil Everly of the Everly Brothers or Bill Anderson, Little Jimmy Dickens, Porter Wagner. I mean, I've written with so many of, of those icons, and it was just kind of a natural-born friendship. Uh-huh. And uh, how does a guy get from Alabama, Lou Verne, Alabama, to Nashville, Tennessee? You know, I often, in my shows, I often say that Hank Williams was my first influence. Mm-hmm. Because where I'm raised, it's not that far from where he was born and raised. So I was raised around a lot of his family, band members, old friends, everywhere. As a kid, you know, my parents would be driving or uncles and aunts, and they'd say, oh, Hank played at this old country schoolhouse, or he played, you know, at this Chevrolet dealership grand opening. So anyway, that kind of kicked off the dream. And um, after being in uh, radio in my hometown, Hank Williams' cousin, her name was Edna. 
She says, you need to go to this little town, Andalusia, Alabama, this 100,000-watt FM station. We know the manager. They're looking for someone. I walk in, and there sits a guy by the name of Billy Henderson, and he had already had songs recorded by people like Crystal Gale and T.G. Shepard, and he became my songwriting mentor right there. Mm-hmm. And that led me to Muscle Shoals for a couple of years. I was roommates with Mike of Shenandoah, the drummer, mm-hmm. and worked in radio there. And then through some other friendships, I met Mel Tillis, and he... He signed me up, $100 a week, and I thought, man, you can't get any bigger than this, and worked at a grocery store at night, and uh, man, those were, that was a great educational, you know, experience to get come to Nashville uh-huh. and get into the songwriting business, because you never know, knew who was going to walk in the door. It could be Roger Miller, Glenn Campbell, Fair and Young, and I'm so thankful that I got to experience a little bit of that side of Nashville. Uh-huh. What has your time in Nashville taught you? Oh, gosh. That's a great question. Uh, one thing, it's taught me to never give up on your dream because it took me a while before I started having you know some really successful records. But th- what it taught me was to really love what you do. Don't do it for money, but the money may come. Mm-hmm. You know. But, I mean, really, it's about loving what you do and I do. I love it. I mean, when I started dreaming of coming here, I didn't even think about getting paid. I just wanted to come, go to the Grand Ole Opry and come to the Ernest Tubb Record Shop and see the Midnight Jamboree. In those first years I was here, uh-huh. oh, man, I would do that on Saturday night. I remember Justin hosting the Jamboree and just so many great memories. But, but yeah. Just uh, the big thing for me, too, about being here is friendships. That's been the highlight of it all. Mm-hmm. More important than any hits or any songs on any albums, mm-hmm. it's been about the friendships. That's been the best. Uh-huh. How, how do you keep your head and stay grounded through all that? This is a, a business where it'd be easy to get dragged down the wrong path. I see that happen. I, I've seen that happen several times to people, but, oh, my gosh. I, I think it took me long enough I wasn't like an overnight success. Mm-hmm. So I've never forgotten how it feels to have to go to work from 4 to midnight at night, you know, at the grocery store and and then get up early in the morning and prepare for a writing appointment. I just, I've never gotten out of hand. My ego has really been intact, I'm going to tell you. Uh-huh. What do you feel like it took to earn the respect of the heavyweights in this business? It's all about a song. Mm-hmm. I mean, like my song One More Day that I wrote with Stephen Dell Jones, when that came out by Diamond Rio, that's when I started getting respect unlike I'd never had. And then other songs, even like my Grand Ole Opry song, so many, you know, people just, they just appreciate the songwriting. Uh-huh. And, and to catch everybody up to speed, he's had uh, songs recorded by Bar- Barbara Streisand, Blake Shelton, Willie Nelson, Faith Hill, Kenny Rogers, Josh Turner, Jerry Lee Lewis, Eddie Arnold, the Oak Ridge Boys, and I could go on all day, man. When you hear those names and you think of your craft being tied to that, man, what, what does that mean to you? Oh, I, honestly, I can't believe it sometimes. I mean, it's so easy in this business to start uh, immediately planning the next thing, you know, mm-hmm. chasing the next dream, the next song to be recorded. But just recently... I celebrated my 25th anniversary with my publisher, Curb Records Publishing. And then I just kind of started revisiting my past and going through old songs like Little Jimmy Dickens recording a song I wrote with him. Uh I mean, those kind of moments, Eddie Arnold. I mean, I remember him recording a song 
that Steve Dorff and I wrote and him, you know, asking me to come to his office and he played it for me. I look back on things like that. I just can't hardly comprehend it sometimes. Uh-huh. And, and I asked you, uh, how, how do you not get the big head, but, but how do you uh, make sure that it's not just mundane or commonplace? It's not like going to work at the Kroger every day. I'm still a fan. Uh-huh. You know, I, I had this conversation with Brenda Lee a few years ago, and she says, after all this time, she's still a fan. Uh-huh. And I really am. I mean, like when some of my favorite artists are in town, I'll go buy a ticket and go see the show. And I've just never lost that spirit. What haven't you done that, that's still on the list for you? That's a great question. Honestly, I have, for the most part, dreams that, I mean, I didn't even dream as big as being in a film with Christofferson. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a part of a film a couple of years ago with Chris and this great actor, Stephen Dorff, about a songwriter's journey from Texas to Nashville. So that was an amazing experience. Um, you know, I've had songs just celebrated a number one in Bluegrass with Rhonda Vincent, and the song was written by Aaron Enderlin and Jeannie Seely and I, uh-huh. and just had a song number one on the Texas charts with Sundance Head. So it's just like dream after dream as, you know, they just continue to come true. And at this point, just just keep doing what I'm doing, being able to continue, you know. You mentioned uh, the film. You've also uh, been uh, a part of the Singing Bee on CMT. Yeah, five seasons of uh-huh. that, and that kind of came out of nowhere. Uh-huh. Wasn't expecting that. My friend Steve Dorff was the music director, and they needed a guy to come in and sing those, you know, songs by Johnny Cash and Hank Jr., and, and my voice fit. You know the description, so off we went. <laughs> uh, man, man, it's got to be like a dream come true, huh? It really is. It really has been, and I've never taken any of it, any of it, for granted. Mm-hmm. I mean, like even today, I was excited when I woke up this morning. I'm thinking, man, I get to come down to Broadway and come to the Ernest Tubb Record Shop because mm-hmm. it's been a few months since I've been here, uh-huh. and immediately walk in the door and start hearing stories about Hank Williams or Ernest Tubb or you know, other people that, you know, had some experiences here. I mean, how do you beat that? No, there, there is no no way to beat it. Uh, so tell me what's on the horizon for you musically. I mean, everybody knows you as the songwriter, but, but you're a great vocalist as well. Tell us about your music and what's up. You know, I released a CD a couple of years ago with a lot of my friends singing on it, like Mo Pitney and Vince Gill, Bobby Bear, Bill Anderson. That was really a CD I'd always dreamed of making. And, you know, for the time being, just writing more songs, you know, for other artists, but also that works for me. I'm not there yet. I don't have enough of songs that I really feel, you know, strong enough to make a brand new album. I don't want to rush it. Yeah. And I don't have to. Yeah. So maybe in a, maybe in a year I'll go back in. But in the meantime, writing songs, uh, going on the road. Mo Pitney and I just finished... Uh, we just finished a uh, show in Michigan. Just been on the road. Been anywhere from Alaska to in L.A. to Florida. It's been a busy year. Man. Well, I tell you what, we appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to uh, to, to be with us. And I can't tell you how much it means to us that uh, you're able to come. And you're definitely welcome back here anytime. Thank you for having me. And again, that's Bobby Tomberlin. We're going to get him mic'd up and let you listen to some of his music. And... Uh, Here we go. 
Hi, I'm singer-songwriter Bobby Tomberlin at the Ernest Tubb Record Shop in downtown Nashville on Broadway. And it's so good to be a part of this show and always great to come in here where so much history lives. I'm going to kick it off with a song that I uh, wrote with J.P. Williams, and I recorded this for my CD. Vince Gill came in, sang harmony with me, and Whispering Bill Anderson came in, and he whispered on a song called The Grand Ole Opry. I was born on one November night Back in 1925 Millions would invite me in To their living room like some old friend I remember it like it was yesterday First time I crossed the radio waves I was introduced by George D. Hay He'd say, let her go boys and the fiddles play And they say that I'm the one That made country music what it is today But it really wasn't me It was the stars that graced my stage I'm alive and well as I can be I'm the Grand Ole Opry When Hank Williams used to visit me For some of my favorite memories And what I'd give for just one more time To hear the voice of Patsy Cline And they say that I'm the one that made country music what it is today but it really wasn't me it was the stars that graced my stage I'm alive and well as I can be I'm the grand Ole Opry So proud to be here, y'all. Here's the wall, bash cannonball, and the coal miner's daughters as good as it gets, and the circle ain't been broken yet. No, the circle ain't been broken yet, and they say that I'm. That made country music what it is today But it really wasn't me It was the stars that graced my stage I'm alive and well as I can be I'm the Grand Ole Opry Thank you. Well, I've been blessed to have a lot of songs of mine recorded by different artists and by some of my heroes, but out of all the ones recorded, this one is the, has been the biggest one yet. It was recorded by Diamond Rio, and it's a song called One More Day.
Last night I had a crazy dream A wish was granted just for me It could be for anything I didn't ask for money Or a mansion in Malibu I simply wished One more day with you one more day One more time One more sunset Maybe I'd be satisfied But then again I know what it would do Leave me wishing still For one more day with you First thing I do is pray for time to crawl. And I'd unplug the telephone, and I'd keep the TV off. I'd hold you every second, and I'd say a million I love yous. That's what I'd do with one more day with you. One more day One more time One more sunset Maybe I'd be satisfied But then again I know what it would do Leave me wishing still for One more day with you one more day One more time One more sunset Maybe I'd be satisfied But then again I know what it would do Leave me wishing still For one more day record shop today I was talking to David McCormick and he started telling me old stories about Audrey Williams there's a lot of stories about Hank of course he played here on the stage right behind me but his wife Audrey she had a habit of always finding new talent and she would come down here you know each week and want to see Mr. Tubb and uh, she would ask David she would be like come on let me speak to the man and ask him to put one of her new acts on the show, and evidently she did that quite often. But anyway, after hearing that story, it made me think of a song that I wrote with Linda Davis and Bill White. A few years ago, I was at Little Jimmy Dickens' birthday party, and over in the corner sat a Country Music Hall of Fame member, Carl Smith. And I'd never met Carl. 
walked up to him, introduced myself, and he was such a kind gentleman. He was like, where are you from? And I told him below Montgomery, Alabama, and he says, oh, Hank Williams country. And Carl was married to June Carter before June married Johnny, and June and Carl were good friends with Hank and Audrey. So when Audrey and Hank divorced, Hank would hang out, I guess, a lot with Carl and June. And Carl said everywhere they would go, Hank would think, you know, that he would see Audrey. He said one time at a ball game, he ran down in the bleachers and ran up to this lady and thought it was Audrey and it wasn't her. One time while driving on Franklin Road here in Nashville, he was riding with Carl and he says, stop the car, there's Audrey. And it wasn't her. So the following Monday, after talking with Carl, I was riding with Bill and Linda, and Linda says, I have an idea for a song called Looking for Audrey, but I really don't know what to do with it. And I'm like, well, I know exactly what to do with it. So I'd love to sing it for you now. He poured out of the back of a blue Cadillac Long, tall, and lean A white cowboy hat Pulled up a stool at the bar Said I'm looking for Audrey Took off his coat Lit up a smoke Stared into space Completely heartbroken I said, what do you have? He said, I'm looking for Audrey. Same conversation, night after night, shows me that worn out picture, an old black and white. That's the love of my life, and I'm looking for Audrey. about the miles on the lost highway how the road and the drinking just drove her away I shake my head when I hear him say I'm looking for Audrey same conversation night after night Shows me that worn out picture An old black and white That's the love of my life And I'm looking for Audrey Has anybody seen Audrey? Yes, I miss my Night after night Shows me that worn out picture An old black and white That's the love of my life And I'm looking for my Audrey Has anybody seen Miss Audrey? Give her my number she drops by 
Tell her I'm so lonesome I could cry Thank you. Well, you, so we've talked about Hank Williams and Audrey. Don't you think we should sing a little Hank Williams, maybe? Yeah, yeah this is one of my favorites. It's a song that actually Hank didn't write. A lot of people think, you know, they think he did, but it was written by a guy by the name of Leon Payne. But it was just no doubt written especially for Hank. It's called Lost Highway. I'm a rolling stone All alone and lost For a life of sin I paid the cost When I pass by All the people say just another guy on the lost highway. A deck of cards and a jug of wine and a woman's lies makes a life like mine on the day we met. I went astray Started rolling down That lost highway I just realized Hank's here <laughs> That's wild Now boys don't start You're rambling around this road of sin You're gonna be sorrow bound Take my advice You're gonna curse the day You started rolling down That lost highway Take my advice Or take his advice gonna curse the day you started rolling down that lost highway all right mr hank <laughs> that was the sounds of bobby tomberlin how do you top that wow come back next week to hear from our friend colt barber from the ernest tub record shop in nashville in the meantime, be sure to head to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or iHeartRadio and subscribe to Fastline Fast Track so you don't miss an episode. Also, add our Spotify playlist to your library to hear music from past, current, and upcoming guests of the show. And now's the time to plan for Plant 2020. If you're in the market for farm equipment, make your first stop Fastline.com. Check out the equipment locator with the price comparison tool with the Iron Average, powered by Iron Solutions. Again, that's Fastline.com. Until next time, it's Brent Adams saying y'all come back. 
and bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group. To learn more about Fast Line's customer-focused marketing solutions, visit FastLineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites, FastLine.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at FastLine.com. Something like that.